Happy Wednesday and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Airport Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest disaster movie ever made, the 1970 Universal Pictures movie, Airport. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm host number two, Mark Cerulli of CovertOps.tv, and we have a very, very special guest. Um, I know I've said that in the past, but this time I really mean it. We have Tracy Niporent, a partner and director of marketing for a Myriad Restaurant Group. And for me personally, he's been the gateway to the culinary nirvana that is Nobu and uh, the Tribeca Grill. So thank you for doing this, Tracy. Uh, you're very welcome. You're, you're our best guest, Mark. You really are. <laughs> I don't even know if you, you – do you know how to use other utensils besides chopsticks? I'm just not sure. <laughs> just my hands. That's excellent. That's excellent. That works for us at our other restaurants. <laughs> I guess there are, there are some restaurant-related uh, questions about this movie. Uh, watching Airport, mostly we've been talking about sandwiches with a crust cut off and lots of coffee. So, uh, Mark, Mark well, I, airport airport food has always been, you know, something that people really look forward to, especially <laughs> airline food. You know, it's uh, all these years later. What is it? It's forty-seven years since the uh, that movie was made, and I think that uh, maybe that has actually regressed. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There are better, better choices, I guess, within an airport, but not so much on a plane. Yeah. When when, when people hand you food that's supposed to be your dinner in a rolled up uh, uh, paper bag, you know, there's something wrong. <laughs> Exactly. It's uh, but uh, you know, it, it's remarkable that uh, even though that you know the food that's actually inside the plane has regressed so poorly, I've noticed that there's a lot larger um, variety of food when you get out to like the food court sections of of terminals. It's more than just the coffee shop and the buffet. We're seeing a lot of name brand. Uh, high high end restaurants showing up in in places like O'Hare and even you know like Cincinnati and and, and little secondary uh, airports they seem to have well, Laguardia some... Laguardia underwent a huge transformation right Tracy well it's it's going through it right now it's funny I was thinking as I was watching those scenes in the movie that it looks a lot like Laguardia you know and that's 47 years ago Laguardia was very dated. <laughs> Really, I mean, it was just really behind its time, and uh, so it's going through. A, it's like a three or four year project, and the traffic uh, getting in and out of there now is really bad. So people who go there have to leave extra time, not just for security, but also just for getting uh, from point A to point B, and you know, in order to make their flights. Um, it's funny in the New York area, we have three major airports, and they're all kind of antiquated. Uh, you know, Newark and and Kennedy as well. But LaGuardia is definitely the worst of the three. Yeah, still still going with the uh, the McDonald's crowd on, on on a lot of these places. But I, I've been play, I've been in some larger hub services like in O'Hare, and uh, I know Charlotte has a extensive. I mean, you can have everything from barbecue to uh, California pizza that's cooked in a brick oven. On you know, when would you ever expect to see a brick oven in a an airport lounge it was very rather surprising no that's a positive development i you know it's happening in our in our area too in that regard in terms of food there are more there are more choices but um it's a funny thing about hospitality though because you know when you're in an airport you're really your whole mindset is you want to get out of the airport you really don't want to spend <laughs> right. time there you know you're you're trying to get to the place you want to go to and you're kind of being held there captive and so i guess this is a good alternative if you have to be there at least there's something you can have besides uh, stale pretzels but um you know, I still think that people aren't going to say, hey, honey, let's go out to eat this this tonight. Let's go out to the airport and have something, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, even if they have a, uh, 
a name restaurant there, like an oyster bar or something like that. The oyster bar from Grand Central had actually opened up at one of the airports. Mm. You're not going to necessarily make the trip to the airport to have your uh, your dinner. I forget which airport it was, but I was passing through and I had noticed they had opened a Gallagher's there. And I'm thinking – or it might have been a Palm. Maybe it was a Palm. And it's like who would have time to come and – you want to enjoy a steak dinner, you know. Uh, who would have time to come and just, uh, you know, burn through a steak and, and get up and run for a plane? Yeah. And also, if, it, if your bags are near you, you have to worry, worry that someone's going to, you know, steal them, grab them while you go off to the restroom or something. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it might it, it might be more for the layover crowd. I mean, if you're going to be stuck in an airport for four hours, you say to yourself, well, there's illegal seafood. Maybe I can sit down and have a, a lobster tail and make this a little bit less of the, the hell that it is. So, um, right. That uh, I don't know. I don't know how big that market is, but I guess there's millions of people going through airports, and that that is kind of a, a semi-captive audience. So, we have a, a rather. I'm in the Dallas area, and we have a rather large uh, Papagayos built into uh, one of the one of the terminals here. And I know people that uh, that use that 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 actually make reservations on their way through while they're going to be stuck in Dallas. They'll they'll head there and get some Cajun food uh, before they head out of town. It's yeah, it it is it it is a sh- a sharp reminder when you watch this 1970 film about what your what your choices were in the past. It was, uh... Do you remember Tracy? I mean, you look at this film and it 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 used to be so easy to get on a plane. I know, I know. I remember my first trip. My mom took me on a trip to California on Continental. I remember it was Continental Golden Jets, and it was 1960. I was seven years old, and we were going to wow. go to. Disneyland, and uh, it was so exciting to go on. And you know, it was a pretty long trip in those days. The planes weren't as modern and as fast, but you know, they they gave you like a uh, plane to play with. You got like special wings that you could put on your your shirt. I mean, they really uh, they they really added to the experience. Mm-hmm. And you know, for a seven year old kid, it's so exciting to be in a plane, and sure. you didn't have to go through all of the security uh, protocols and everything. It really you know, you had a place to put your bag, and they didn't charge extra for the luggage, and you know, there, people there dressed just, up, right? Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of that. There was a series on on uh, TV a couple of years ago, Pan Am, that I thought it didn't <laughs> it didn't do very well in the ratings, but I thought it was actually pretty good. It was interesting how they really made a show of dressing appropriately and trying to really upgrade the quality of the experience. And uh, the show was a little soap opera ish, but uh, the right. the trappings of the the airline were pretty pretty uh, high class and now you just feel like you're a cargo that's being shuttled from place to place unless you right. can buy a, a premium seat you know now now you know they make a big deal of giving you an extra two or three inches of leg room it's like like why wouldn't you want to do that anyway you know that's that's hospitality would you really want to just put people well, in like spam in a can they just, just want to cram as many people in a plane as they can well, it, it's it's. I understand the the uh, financial aspects, but I think that hospitality has to be a big part of uh, the airline experience. At least it should be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this whole idea where you know you you can only bring a certain type of bag, and now they're going to start charging you extra for overhead compartments. And what's next? You'll have to have a pay toilet. I mean, it. it at some point, it, it gets. <laughs> You know, uh, I think it was Ryanair, which is a UK carrier. They actually were exploring charging people to use the restroom. On a plane. Yeah, I mean, you see, you know, in the restaurant business, our whole mentality is that we want to treat the guests very well. We want them to have a little two-hour vacation from all the cares yeah. of the world. And uh, so, the, you know, and there, you know, there are always things where 
you, you don't want to cut corners on the quality of what you give people and the quality of what their experience is. There are ways you can, you know, sometimes we're in a narrow margin business. There are things that you have to look at and, and, and be careful about how you spend money, but you don't put it on the backs of your guests. I think that's really a, not a smart thing to do. And, uh, and, and people understand when they're, you know, you can watch a commercial and then they're telling you that they're basically scamming you because, you know, when you get to the airport, that doesn't, your, your experience is not duplicated there. It's not the friendly skies anymore. It's more like the turbulent skies. And, right. you know, you just hope you get there from point A to point B. But anyway, it, it, the movie, I thought, uh, I'm looking at that. The part of it was that so many of the people that are in the movie are now no longer with us. You know, right. Like, most of the people in the movie have passed away, but I guess, you know, 47 years ago, that can happen. I, I thought that when I saw Helen Hayes, she looked like she really wanted to get the hell out of there, you know? <laughs> I think she was looking for Lee Strasberg or something. She was like, <laughs> you know, how did I get into this movie, you know? Uh, you know but all was... the performances, I thought, I mean, you know, granted the movie today is a little dated and everything, but the performances were very strong. They were all really good actors. They were. Well, I remember Lloyd Nolan from... Uh, what was he, Julia? He was the doctor in Julia. He right. was in a lot of things. And he's like the captain there. He always had an authoritative air about him. That yeah. was that was that was impressive. And and Jacqueline Bissett, mm. you know, she was she was quite the uh, the knockout in those days. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. She really was, you the, know. The strange thing is that she's now the same age as Helen Hayes was in this film, and she still looks fantastic. I mean, if you if, if you see recent pictures of Jacqueline Bissett, she's just incredible at 71. Um, that is that is impressive. It's, well, everybody ages except for us. We're we're fortunate yeah. in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for audio. It's, yeah, and, uh, it's uh, you know, it, it's amazing. Like you were saying about the the there's only, there, there was this high end. It's like going out on a date. People dressed up in their Sunday best and things like that. And nowadays, it's sort of like when you get on a plane, people are dressed like they're going to the laundromat or something because they've run out of clothes. And as a as a restaurateur, do you have – I would imagine that it's difficult with the increasingly casual nature of people's uh, dress wear. Is this difficult to maintain uh, a certain air in your restaurant? I mean, I understand it's relaxed dining, but – I think that, you know, depending on what your concept is, people kind of police themselves. We always we, – we, we err on the side of informality, but, you know, mm -hmm. we used to joke uh, that if you're, you're – your feet and your privates were covered. That would cover it. Uh, it, it really <laughs> I'll have to does. Double check next time. <laughs> if people showed up like on a chariot and uh, like looking like extras from Ben Hur, maybe that would be a little bit much. But I, I think that when you go to a restaurant, we're catering to you. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you show up scruffy, like you were just uh, you know, working a construction site and you haven't had a chance to take a shower or anything, I mean, that doesn't reflect well on you. And you know. Other guests in the restaurant probably won't mm -hmm. want to be anywhere near you. So we haven't really had a problem with it. You know, I think yeah. people, for the most part, they don't show up in flip-flops and things like that. I mean, you know, in the summertime when it's hot, sometimes people will come in a, in a T-shirt. But that's, you know, that's okay. From my perspective, you know, dining in, in uh, a number of your restaurants, I mean, you know, it's an experience. I mean, to, to, to get into Nobu is still, uh, in my in my book, a big deal, and, and everybody is, is upscale and well-dressed. And uh, Although it's funny, I last time I was there, I saw, you know, family with kids, and I'm like, man, my parents never took me. You know, sushi, I, I didn't have sushi till I was in my, my 20s. I know. Well, it's true. It's a I different mean... age. It's a different age. You know, back when I was a kid, you know, yeah, we did things as a family, but when they wanted to go out, you know, the kids stayed at home. We went to Chinese restaurants. You know, in in, right, in right. the sixties, uh, 
Well, first of all, there weren't a lot of Japanese restaurants, to be honest with you, in the uh, immediate, you know, decades right after World War II. Obviously, you know, Japan had been uh, an enemy, and mm. so it took a while for that uh, that whole feeling to change. You know, today, Japan and Germany are two of the United States' closest friends, but uh, it took a well, while for, for the cuisine. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I was just thinking, you know, uh, whatever happens in the world, uh, we're going to know about it three hours before you do. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We'll, we'll clue you in, you know. Okay. <laughs> Just send me a text. If they drop the big one, you know, we'll say, okay, <laughs> coming your way. The reparations, you know, just wait a few hours and you'll see. Well, the uh, the earliest I can remember uh, a Japanese restaurant that I went to, I remember going to uh, Benihana in the early 70s. I think that was, that seemed to be the first breaking point on, uh, you know, a specifically Japanese restaurant. Most of the ones previously were like the, the Chinese chow mein style. Yeah, and, exactly. Chow uh, mein and chop suey, uh, which were kind of like uh, Americanized versions of, of mm. Chinese. But there were a lot of Chinese restaurants. We used to go out all the time, and, and uh, we had a ball at them. Uh, the thing about something like uh, Benihana was that it was very theatrical. Yes. And so people liked the slicing and dicing. They liked the show. Um, that The thing that made Nobu so successful, honestly, was that we got away from all of the cliches. We didn't have the shoji screens. We didn't take your shoes. Uh, you know, we didn't have the decor that was exactly like what all the Japanese restaurants were supposed to be. Um, and, and so it was kind of a new style. It was plated differently, um, used spices from Peru and South America. And it really uh, opened up the door to a whole new approach to Japanese cooking. Mm. And that's and Nobu has been uh, very successful, obviously, but it's also been uh, duplicated by other uh, restaurants to try to make that presentation and there uh, is no substitute well i appreciate that you know I, I think that you know the quality of the original is still the quality of the original it's uh and and nobu's you know in a lot of places now we're specifically involved here in new york and uh also in london the the original nobu mark uh, just so you know in, in it looks like in march we don't have an exact date yet but it will be moving from 105 hudson street the original site to 195 broadway which is right at the edge of the financial district it's in the old at&t building which is actually the building where the first telegraphs were sent All right. back All right. in the day so there's a lot of history there and it'll be on two levels and and uh, so we'll be able to serve a lot more people uh, our rents the rents in tribeca you know, we were pioneers in this neighborhood, and uh, we helped in some ways to put it on the map. And your reward is that you get priced out of your own neighborhood. So uh. the, the the rent got to be uh, prohibitive to the point where we, we can't serve more people. So all we would be doing would be working for the landlord, and we decided that it's too hard and, you know, too strenuous to just do that. And at least if we're paying a little bit more rent, we should have a bigger opportunity. So it's going to be more in line with what we have at Nobu 57, a bigger fiscal mm -hmm. space. Um, it's also going to – the decor is being done by David Rockwell, which is uh, – he's very theatrical, and he his designs on the original Nobus and on many of the ones that have followed have been very original and have really uh, helped to develop the whole experience and, and the cachet. Um, and he's, you know, he's done very well out in California too. I think he designed the Kodak Theater, where I don't know if they still call it that, but that was where uh, I guess the Academy Awards emanate from. Oh yeah, it's a gorgeous space. Yeah. And he gorgeous. he he started in theatrical lighting, so he had kind of a a grounding, and uh, 
but he, he's done a wonderful job for the Nobus and really for a lot of other restaurants as well. So you know, we're excited. I think it's it's hard to leave the original destination. It kind of helped put everything on the map. And mm. my, off, my office is only a couple of blocks away. It's so easy to walk over to the original. Uh, but, you know, time marches on and uh, you have to sometimes uh, make changes to accommodate for that. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I would imagine. I would imagine that trying to figure traffic moving through the restaurant and things. We, we, in this particular minute, we're watching everybody coming out of those tight jetways into the large uh, space of Gate Thirty Three here, uh, and they just kind of that, that must that must be like a really critical thing in designing a restaurant of how people move in and out and and that they're kind of oh yeah, the traffic flows. Obviously, yeah, the traffic flows are very important, and um, you know, really, you make trying to make smart decisions about everything. Uh, at Tribeca Grill, we have a bar in the middle of the room. Yeah, it's an old coffee factory, and that was originally the bar at Jack Dempsey's restaurant, wow. and then it was at a restaurant called Maxwell's Plum, which was owned by Warner well, Leroy, I, who's the son of Marvin Leroy. That was from Maxwell Plums. The, yeah. uh, the bar in the Tribeca Grill. Wow. I, I have to say, America, that is a gorgeous bar. I've had several martinis there myself. Well, it, it's an old mahogany bar, and it's it's yeah. got a lot of history behind it. Uh, and we put it in the middle of the room because uh, it's great for people watching then. Uh, and so the traffic flows around the bar are very good. But a lot of times in a restaurant, bars are normally against the wall. But we wanted it to be in the middle of the room because uh, New Yorkers are very concerned about where they're seated. Uh, they don't want to be sitting in Siberia. So we felt that if the bar was centrally located and there was kind of a scene at the bar, then no matter where you were sitting in any corner of the restaurant, you'd have a good vantage point of what was going on. So that was a strategic decision. And uh, I think that actually David Rockwell, I think, has been involved in the design of some airports as well now um, or airport lounges. I don't remember which ones they are, but what you, you've made a very valid point uh, that um, – the, the traffic flow and where, where people sit and their vantage point, you can make the experience a lot more palatable for people if it's an attractive physical plant and if they feel that they're not, you know, crammed in and they have a little bit of space to, to stretch out. Unfortunately, most of the time when you're in airports, you're, you know, you're, you're kind of like, Forced people are forced on top of each other, and that's not the most mm. pleasant uh, experience. Yeah, it, it seems to be one of the most poorly designed public spaces. I mean, if you think about where the like chairs are, you have a chair that you really can never be comfortable in while you're waiting, and then there's this mad dash to get into the tight little tube that gets you down to the uh, mm. to the plane. So it's just after you get past and and you know trying to check in a baggage and dragging bags all across, it just seems no matter what happens, nothing is comfortable or convenient. Fascinating that, that that someone who worked, I, I, would, I would think, yeah, having a theatrical background might help in just understanding, looking at the way uh, you know, traffic ebbs and flows in a in over the course of a day in a in a restaurant or in an airport. Um, you know, I'm just I'm just it, curious, uh, Tracy, like how how long do you take to like I, I'm assuming you had a blank slate for the new Nobu. How long does it take to design and and figure out? Because I guess you want every detail to be right. I mean, it's. I think the planning sometimes it can take it could take a year or even longer than that. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. Um, it's not just the design, but then you get into all the different uh, ordinances and uh, putting in electricity and construction permits and so on and so forth. There's a lot of things that go into building a restaurant, and there's a lot of, in New York. It tends to be very complicated. But one department often doesn't know what the other department's doing. So <laughs> well, it's a lot it's the of same you, on, you on good, this coast. 
Yeah, it's a lot of project management that has to go on. What do they say about, you know, writing is easy, you know, if you're a writer, all you do is open a vein. It's the same yeah. thing with, uh, with with opening a restaurant. Everybody is always coming in saying, oh, why don't you open a restaurant here? We could really use this here. We could use that there. And it's like, yeah, then you have to go through this whole process again. And, you know, it's very exciting, but it's also uh, very onerous in many ways also. And this is going to give you a lot more square footage, though, for uh, you know, floor space and things? or how- Oh, yeah. It, it's got an upstairs and a downstairs. It's much bigger. And, and uh, it's also very close now to uh, the new Trade Center. And uh, you know, a lot of the, the publishing companies like Condé Nast and Time, uh, Time Inc. are down there. And uh, it's uh, Wall Street, obviously. So there's, there's, uh, there's a very good marketplace down there. And, you know, lower Manhattan in that area has really uh, come back since 9-11. I mean, there was tremendous uh, devastation, obviously, in a period of time where you, you know, go through mourning and you go through uh, just trying to recover from it. And then your resolve is always to try to build something better than what existed before. And I think that, uh, by and large, that's happened. The only downside is that things have gotten so expensive and the real estate has gotten so expensive that sometimes it's, you know. Victims of their own success because, yeah. you, you know, the Tribeca Grill really helped turn that area around. Yeah, it's 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 one of those things. Uh, and it's funny. It's not just us. Uh, I was just at Union Square Cafe uh, last Sunday night for dinner, and they moved uh, from their original location. I mean, got to give Danny Meyer credit just like we give uh, Drew credit here in Tribeca. He helped uh, put together that Union Square neighborhood, and the reward was basically getting priced out of uh, his space. And that space would have needed a lot of work. And so they moved to another space, and they did a beautiful job. Actually, Rockwell designed that one also and uh, did a very nice job with it. And uh, it was a very pleasant uh, pleasant evening. But uh, he's obviously a very successful restaurateur, but he's also a smart business person, and he wasn't going to be held up by the landlord. So they moved mm-hmm. to a better space, a bigger space. It's dislocating because they had to be closed, I think, for the better part of a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, Whereas we're we're staying open at the old Nobu's until the new one's open, so you know, you know we're not losing any time, I don't think. But they did they they lost uh, the better part of a year. So, but they're up and running again. You have to you have to look at this very pragmatically, you know. And uh, they're still in the in the Union Square neighborhood. They're just not where they used to be. So there's always challenges. Look, we have a new president. It's going to be very interesting to see how that all transpires. Um, we're holding our breath and. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe there'll be a movie about that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You know, we we know that Alec Baldwin's going to have work at least for the next several yeah. years. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. He's made his he made his agent very happy. As a matter of fact, at some point people may want him to become president. So you never know. It's a yeah. I, I was we, we were talking in a, a couple of weeks ago on the show about recasting the movie. If we're going to do Airport again, and it never hit me that Alec Baldwin would probably make a good. Uh, the Burt Lancaster role in this movie, he might do a a good job, and I could see him doing that same crisp kind of almost a, a Burt Lancaster delivery. Um, That's true. Yeah. But, uh, it, it it's it, but these you know everybody that was on this I mean, we we grew up with all these people as kids and mm. see, seeing them at the peak yeah. of their game and stuff. And didn't uh, we go see? Uh, we saw a Burt Lancaster movie in the theater together. It was by Dawn's Early Light about. A nuclear Twi- missile silo. Twilight's, Twilight's last, last gleaming. That Twilight's was it. Gleaming. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah, awesome. That was, that was an older, an older. Well, yeah. you know, he he. I'm sure it meant hospitalization and a paycheck. So you know, God bless uh, 
Burt Lancaster for taking taking the job. It, uh, I'm sure he he was kind of, you know at that time an older actor, kind of difficult to get work. Even if you know, I mean, he'd, he'd won Oscars and things. He was in movies like The Killers and stuff. But you, when you get older, it's it's difficult for a lot of older actors and especially actresses to get work. So you know, thank thank goodness he took I, it. I I loved him in uh, Field of Dreams. You know, he played oh, Moonlight yeah. Graham. Yeah. And I, I just that's one of my favorite movies. Uh, uh, I get sentimental at the end there when they say, "Dad, you want to have a catch?" You know, I mean, the, you know, it's 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 you know, it's a tearjerker right to the end and the music and the credits. But he he played a great role there, you know, oh, and yeah. he was he had that kind of. I think that might have been his last film. I, I, uh, I think you're I think you're right. I think it was '94 and he died that year. So it yeah, if that's not his last film, it was one of his very last films. Um, but yeah, all, all powerhouse. I don't want to say hitters, but it's that's you know it's a baseball movie. But but you Kevin Costner in that and James Earl Jones, uh, it just fantastic casting all around on that movie. And similar, it really, to, it really was. Similar uh, to he was film. also in a movie. No, oh, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. Well, he was also in a movie uh, called Local Hero, where he played kind of a Donald Trump like character. It yeah. was kind of a small film. Peter Riegert was in it. Yes, Peter Riegert. And uh, you know he was talking. Uh, Trump, uh, not Trump, uh, Lancaster played a, uh, like a, a, he wanted to develop something in this small enchanting place in Scotland. And the locals there basically did not, even if they were going to make tons of money, they didn't want their lives to be disrupted by this. And it's really a charming film. I remember it was, the music was by uh, Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits. Mm, right. And uh, it's a, it's a wonderful film to, to, to find it really it's a it's a little gem it wasn't one of these big films but Burt Lancaster was was quite good in that also um and it's very good city remember Atlantic City yeah what a great oh, yeah film. yeah yeah I don't, I don't know if That's you've seen right. it if you've seen the swimmer it was about it was, I think it was made about a year or two before airport but a very small film uh where he's a he, he's a, a fellow that lives in Connecticut and he figures out that he knows so many people in the upscale neighborhood where he's at that there are swimming pools and backyards across across the entire town that he lives in. And he figured that he's at a party and he could actually swim his way home if he just you know got out of a pool and got into the next pool. And as we go through the, the picture, you find out that the life he thinks he's having in his head isn't as, as nice. As, you know, it turns out he had a divorce and he had you know, a bunch of problems. But we've, you kind of journey with him as he goes across this town and meets his neighbors. Um, but he, he's just an incredibly powerful and I think sometimes forgotten, you know, what a great actor he was in, in all of his work. He, he always took every every movie, I think, that he did very seriously. Um, yeah, he had a great name, Burt Lancaster. I mean, yeah. wow, that's like, <clears throat> that's a great marquee name. That's yeah. like something, you know. I, if he was born with that name, then he was destined for greatness. I don't know if that, that came later or, or – but uh, I know that um, he was a very good athlete from what I understand. Yeah, uh, he was a circus performer. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, uh, he was he, he was the complete package. I, I just looked it up on on, uh, on Wikipedia, and we can rest assured his, he was born Burton – Lancaster. So Burt Lancaster is his real name. So. There it is. There it is. That's, that's pretty he was cool. Born for greatness. And, I mean, movies. Unlike are... Hal Linden. What was Hal Linden's name? I don't know. Oh, I can't remember what his original, but he was driving by the exit for Linden, New Jersey, and he took that. So he was that close to being uh, Joey yeah. Car- Carter Adder. Yeah. 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 There you go. Munaki. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Hey. hey. His, original, from his original. His original name. 
his original name was Harold Lipschitz. I'm looking this up right now. Yeah, was, yeah. Oh, uh, there you yeah. go. Oh, there there, you go. So I, we could take that further, but I won't. Yeah, it's, okay. <laughs> it's a family show. <laughs> you know how um, that one goes. If you're Lipschitz, well, never mind. Um, <laughs> but and so I actually, I, 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 I live in Tenafly, New Jersey, so you know, uh, I don't know if Tenafly would have been a name that uh, that anybody could have adopted. There was a there was, a there was a TV show named Tenafly, if I remember correctly. It was part of the. Uh, NBC Mystery Movies. Uh, Tenafly was a. Uh, um, I can't. Uh, I, I want to say. Let me actually. Let me. Let me look this up so I'm not. Uh, uh, James McEachin was in it, and it was part of the NBC Mystery Movies. And, uh, oh wow! So it was. It was. It was to take on. It, he was kind of a Shaft character. It was kind of to take on, uh, you know, a black detective uh, in you know, being an investigator and also working on the streets and things like that. So that was. That was where it was built up, but it, it lasted uh, four four episodes, only four episodes. Oh, but uh, good. So I didn't even. It, it was just four a fly then. It didn't make it yeah. up to ten. <laughs> right, right. right. <laughs> oh my god. Ed Harris actually uh, grew up in Tenafly. The actor Ed Harris oh. was had a very good career and went to Tenafly High School. So that's one of the claims, the fame of the town. Um, so there was also there was a it's funny because I live in Tenafly I work in Tribeca and my name's Tracy so everything's with T's. Ah. There was actually <laughs> a there was a, yeah exactly as I get older I, I I need little devices to remember things. There was a show there was a Tribeca series that was on TV for a short period of time too. I don't it may not have made it past four episodes but mm. now they name cars after Tribeca. You know it's funny when we got started. In this neighborhood, it was off the beaten path. Nobody knew what the name meant or what it was. But now it has a certain amount of cachet to it. Oh, so yeah. Yeah. you use it to name things, and uh, uh, it could be a car or whatever. It, it, it has a different uh, different aspect to it, it when people hear it now. It is such a complete different world now. The whole, I mean, the whole general tri-state area. When I was a kid, Tribeca to me was always my my dad was a, my dad was a boilermaker, and he, he worked in different welding jobs in the city. And uh, when we go to Tribeca, it was to go to uh, the meatpacking district just just north mm -hmm. of there. Yeah, and that's right. We'd buy uh, like those big tubes of bologna, Hansel and Gretel bologna, from the old Bohemian Meat Company, which I think now is probably some. It's an upscale scale bar, I'm sure by now. Um, but uh, I, I understand there's a uh, there's an 18 hole golf course in Bayonne, and that's like a, a destination for for people to go to Bayonne. When I was a kid, I was like, really? I, I, I can't. Yeah. I can't picture. Remember Bayonne when the Bowery was a joke? Oh, you're going to wind up on the Bowery, and now it's like you'd be lucky to get an apartment on. The oh Bowery. yeah, now, Daniel Balut has a restaurant CBGB down there. You know where CBGBs, you know, well, the, the old CBGBs yeah. used to be. Yeah, and uh, that neighborhood has actually become. Uh, well, that's where the Derelicts used to be. You know, so you definitely yeah. didn't want to go there. They had they had restaurant supply companies and they had derelicts. That was the mm. uh, uh, and they didn't necessarily go hand in hand. But uh, the thing about Manhattan is that it's an island and there's only so much land, and uh, eventually it all gets developed. And uh, when things start going in the right direction financially, that's what happens. Even here in Tribeca, which, there's a lot of uh, spaces that used to be uh, parking lots. That are now have buildings right across the street from my office on West Broadway. There was a movie that was filmed. Uh, it could happen to you with Nicolas Cage and Bridget Fonda, where uh, he's police. a cop. He went, the policeman. He wins the lottery or he gets a lottery ticket. They built right across the street here a real diner that looked just like a weathered diner, and it was there for the better part of a year. And so it was so cool to come to work. It was right across the street from what was then Montrachet, our first restaurant, mm -hmm. which is now Batard. But uh, and you know, 
when they weren't shooting, the thing was just still sitting there, and it looked like a real operating weathered uh, diner. One day, I was walking along, and I suddenly, on White Street, I see like a newsstand, kind of an older newsstand, and it just had never clicked into my mind that uh, there was a newsstand there. And I wanted to pick up a paper. I go over, and it wasn't manned by anybody, but they had that day's paper there. And then they had an older paper. I said, that's kind of strange that they have an older one. But no one was there, so I took out a quarter. I put it down because I think the newspapers were 25 cents or maybe it was 50 cents. And I start walking away with it. I think it was a New York Post. And I still hear a voice, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know. And it turned out that was like a prop for the movies that you know was there for like a background shot. And I was <laughs> oh, actually funny. looking at it like it was like it was a real newsstand. So it just shows how naive I am. But uh, Tribeca has become a big destination for a lot of uh, TV and, and movie shooting. I know that the uh, uh, Blue Bloods uh, has shot quite a few things down here, the Tom Selleck uh, CBS program. But uh, there have been and quite it's, a few it's, movies it's also. Now, it, it's a film center, too. I mean, with the Tribeca Film Festival and all kinds of stuff, it, it seems to be like a mini Hollywood down there at the, at, at the bottom of Manhattan. Well, yes, you know, the building where Tribeca grows in above us is the Tribeca Film Center. That's where mm-hmm. Robert De Niro has his offices and the Weinstein Brothers. Right, uh, right, right. Their company. So there's a lot of history. It was a, a coffee factory. Uh, and I, Robert De Niro had a lot of vision, actually, to develop it uh, and turn it into – he wanted to be an East Coast guy, I guess, more than a West Coast person. And uh, he felt he could create something there where – a lot of people would be working in the industry and who wouldn't necessarily have to be uh, only on the West Coast. And that's pretty much what's happened. The, all the offices in the building are uh, occupied by people that work in the industry. And uh, so a lot of them come down and eat at the restaurant. It's very exciting through the years. You know, we've seen a lot of people come through those doors. Mm. And, and it's, a very, it's a very good environment. And from that uh, came the, the Tribeca Film Festival, which has kind of become a staple every year of uh, – inventive uh, cinematography and films from all over the world. Yeah, it, it's funny. Fil- uh, the filmmaking industry in America started in uh, in Fort Lee, New Jersey, just about where the uh, entrance to the George Washington Bridge was. Uh, Edison had his first uh, film studio up there on the hill, and uh, then it moved out to Hollywood. But now it's it all seems to, I mean, between... You know, Tribeca and uh, and that Silver- was in Georgia. Well, yeah, and and the and the well in in Astoria, the the old Silver Cup uh, bread factory is now one of the major studios on the East Coast. So it's kind of come full circle in the past uh, century, and uh, it's it, nice to know that it's still you know active on all over. And and like like Mark was saying, you know, even in places like Georgia and North Carolina, there's there's still just such there's such a need for the the software that you know people wanting with 500. Uh, TV channels and and all that stuff. They've got to keep creating new things. So, content. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. What do they say? Content. Is content king. is king. Yeah. The Sumner Redstone said that. Yeah, that's right. That's, yeah. that's all I know is you know. Going back, there was there was one scene before we 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 all break up. Uh, Dean Martin leaning over Jacqueline Bissett in that that uh, first scene. I thought it would have been great if he could have broken into song. I just think if he could have crooned a couple of tunes, that that would have been, you know, that if would have. He, if he could some more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would have been nice. That was, you know, I mean, Dean Martin, a fine actor, but I think that's not really what he's known for. You know, it's uh, it's more to banging out those tunes. Mm. And the other thing is, why couldn't Don Rickles be in this movie? I mean, yeah. what was what was going oh on? Oh my God, they, what, he would have been so. Is he blacklisted or what? As uh. that nasty passenger. 
Oh yeah, if if he if he were uh, yeah, yeah if he were the steel nuts guy that would have been aces. Oh my god, he would have been great. <laughs> wow, it didn't all end with Sergeant Sharky, you know. <laughs> Tracy, thanks so much for being on the show. This has been a really great week uh, for us. We're making our last week our best week. And uh, for people listening in, uh, you can reach out to us on all the social media that we usually go to. The usual suspects are Twitter, Airport Minute, Facebook, Airport Minute, uh, the Airport Minute Commanders Club. And, of course, our great big website, airportminute.com, where you can catch up on old episodes and also uh, buy yourself some cool swag like uh, These Nuts Are Stale coffee mugs and uh, Patroni T-shirts. They're all out there. So uh, we're going to keep going with some really more great guests. Uh, so join us here next time on the Airport Minute. We'll see you here tomorrow. Until then, good day. Bye-bye. Nice going, sweetheart. Remind me to send a thank you note to Mr. Bowling. Mm-hmm.